hope you're ready to study God's Word together today, and we're going to look at some uh, interesting passages of Scripture, a very fascinating story this morning uh, I want to look at. Uh, if you were with us last week, we left our storm chasers. Those are the disciples of Jesus that uh, uh, followed Jesus and learned how they could become uh, disciples and make disciples of other individuals as well. And we left them last week in uh, Mark chapter 5, the first 20 or 21 verses, something like that, And the story there was uh, Jesus uh, healing a tormented guy. Uh, It was a guy that was tormented with demons, and we realized that Jesus had the power to drive out demons. The week before, if you were with us, uh, we saw Jesus on the lake with his disciples, and Jesus calmed the sea. And so we see Jesus had power over the forces of nature. Last week, he had power over the demonic. This morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus had, has power over sickness and even, uh, and even death. Now, today, I want us to look at two hopeless people uh, that we'll notice in their story in Mark chapter 5, but for this story to make very much sense to you at all and to give you some background uh, for some of the things that take place in the story, I want you to turn not to the book of Mark yet. We'll get there in a moment. But I want you to turn with me to the three passages of Scripture that are on the board uh, for you today. First, would you go with me, the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The third book of your Old Testament. And I want you to look at a passage of Scripture that at first, when I read this, you're just going to say, this is just weird. What on earth does it have to do uh, with the message or with the, uh, what we're going to talk about? But trust me, by the time we're done, you're going to see a, a woman living in the very middle of, of this section of Scripture. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25. Remember, these are Old Testament instructions. And now, can you bring our lights up just a little bit? I, I, and perhaps people are having struggle uh, to be able to see house, light, house lights up just a little bit. And uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, you're going to read this and say, wow, this is just really, really weird. But I want you to understand that this is not written to Christian people, to you and I, Rather, it is written to Old Testament Jews uh, and uh, uh, regulations for them, but God speaks to them and to us through this passage of Scripture. So read this morning Jewish lenses into this story uh, and the story that we're going to be reading, uh, studying together today. Verse 25, jumping right in the middle of a section that describes uncleanliness, religious uncleanliness. It says in verse 25, When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or she has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period." And anyone, anything that sets, uh, anything she sets on will be unclean as during her period, and whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he will be unclean until evening. Jump down to verse 31. Verse 31 says, You must keep uh, the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so that they will not die in their uncleanliness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Now you're saying to yourself, man, I'm glad I came to church this morning. What a wonderful, encouraging passage of Scripture. Trust me, it'll make sense as we move uh, on into the rest. But what I want you to understand, that this passage of Scripture is much more than just about hygiene. It's really about being untouchable. 
untouchable in society and religiously. And we'll learn more about that as the story unfolds for us this morning. Now go to the next section of Scripture, the book of Numbers. And chapter 15, the book of Numbers, chapter 15, and verse 37. And you're going to say, what on earth does this have to do with what we just read? Hang tight with me. By the end of the message, it will make total sense to you. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 37, this is what the Lord says. It says, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. And you'll have these tassels to look at so that you will remember all the Lord's command, all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lust of your heart and your eyes. Then you remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now again, this is not a passage of Scripture for us as uh, uh, 21st century uh, American Christians or Christians anywhere in the world today to follow. But in G- during Jesus' day, uh, every Jewish male, including Jesus, would have worn uh, over top of his clothing uh, an item of clothing similar to this right here. It's called a prayer shawl, and it would be worn around uh, the, the shoulders of the person. And uh, when he was stopping to pray, he would simply put the shawl up over his head like this, and he would kneel in prayer. Jesus did this regularly. This was part of his clothing, and you will notice that on uh, the, the end of it, there were tassels. Actually, it says there were blue tassels. This one is not blue, but you notice blue in the fabric. But the tassels, there would be a specific number, 613 of them. You say, why 613? Because the Jewish rabbis had decided that there were 613 commands in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and uh, for people to be able to remember all 613 of them, there were 613 separate tassels on the prayer shawl, okay? And they were to be able to look at them and remember them and remember to be holy. Now, this is important. The edge of the prayer shawl was called the kabaf. Kabaf. And you're saying, man, I am thrilled I'm here this morning to be able to learn that they all wore prayer shawls and the edge of it was called a kabaf. Don't lose me here, but go to the last passage of Scripture, Malachi, the fourth chapter. Now, the book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew. You'll be able to find it there. Malachi in chapter 4. And I want you to read a section of Scripture right at the end. And remember, there were 400 years between Malachi, uh, when it was written, and the last Old Testament passage of Scripture to be written, and when Jesus would come and the Gospels would begin. 400-year period of silence. God didn't uh, give any prophecies, any writings whatsoever. But in the very last word, the very last prophet, I want you to notice what it says. Let me bring this all back full circle. Verse Chapter 4 and verse 1 says, surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace, and all the arrogant and evildoer will be stubble. And on that day, uh, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. 
Not a root or a branch will be left of them. Verse 2 is what I want you to see. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's Jesus, it's a prophecy about Jesus, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings. The word wings is the word kabaf. There was a legend that went this way after the writing of Malachi and was well known when Jesus came that when the Messiah came, they believed that there would be special healing power in the kabaf, the edge of the Messiah's prayer shawl. Let's bow and pray together this morning. Father, I just pray that you take your word today and just open it to us from every section of your word and teach us today from this story of a hopeless woman and a hopeless father that you and you alone are able to give hope into our greatest need. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the fifth chapter. The title of the message this morning is Peace for the Hopeless, Peace for the Hopeless. Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. I want us to dig into this story because it talks about two very, very hopeless people. Now, the story begins with a guy by the name of Jairus, who's a prominent member of the synagogue. Matter of fact, he's called the leader, or you might your translation may say ruler of the synagogue, he was basically boss of the synagogue. He took care of the, uh, of the buildings. Uh, he led the worship service. He organized who was going to be speaking on any given day. He was really the most prominent person in the synagogue. He'd be known all over town. Everyone would know who Jairus was, and everybody respected him, or at least they should. Verse 21, let's just read verse by verse by verse and study verse by verse this story to see what it teaches us. So I hope you have your Bible. Let's just read along this morning. Verse 21 says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him and while uh, while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. By the time Jesus, uh, this story comes along, Jesus uh, was basically uh, banned from almost every synagogue uh, in Galilee. Uh, He was a threat to the rabbis. They didn't like him. They were jealous of him. And and, uh, essentially, they just said, Jesus, you aren't welcome in our worship services. Now, having said that, It would make total sense for us for Jairus to keep his distance from Jesus because uh, that was just would have been the political thing to do. But you notice that Jairus' situation was hopeless. Why? Because he had a little girl, and what you tell me, what was wrong with the little girl? We don't know the disease, but we know what? She was sick. And he was desperate. In fact, the word that's used means my little girl is dying. It's extreme. She's in the last moments of life. And he says, Jesus, you come and touch her. Now in verse 24 and 25, Jairus shares with us that he really doesn't care what everybody in the synagogue thinks about him. He's not concerned about people saying, well, that guy's going after Jesus. He just knows that his daughter is desperately ill and that Jesus might be able to do something about it. It says in verse 24, So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. This is where the story gets interesting. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding 
for 12 years. Remember Leviticus chapter 15? This wasn't just a a, a medical issue. It was a social and religious issue as well. Socially, this woman would not be allowed ever to marry. And if she were married, her husband could literally give her a certificate of divorce and walk away. She could never have children. She was never allowed to be in the presence of people in worship. Literally, this woman, because of her disease, could not enter the very synagogue that Jairus was ruler of. How would you describe her? Well, she'd been sick for 12 years, and obviously her condition was hopeless. Verse 26 says this. It says, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Now, we've all uh, laughed about doctors practicing medicine. We're saying, hey, we don't want you to practice. We want you to do something about it. But you need to understand it was a whole lot worse in Jesus' time because these guys were not so much what we would call doctors. They were more like magicians, all right? And medicine from, uh, in Jesus' time, most of it came from the east, from the Persians. And the Persians had remedies for everything, including this. Let me read some of the remedies that a woman that had a flow of blood that they used on them. One, uh, she was encouraged to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg and a certain piece of cloth. Makes a lot of sense to me. Second, that didn't work. She was to drink doses of onions cooked in wine. And somebody was to come up behind her and shock her by saying, Stop, flow of blood! Now, my thought is with that, if it didn't cure her bleeding, uh, you know, there were probably other ramifications of that. She probably had now a bladder issue as well, I'm guessing, you know, or something. And and lastly, if none of those things ate, uh, it was suggested that she would eat the dung from a white mule. Now, all of you ladies are saying thank you that I didn't have to go to that gynecologist. You know, but that was just the way it was in that day. Verse 27, 28. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his cloak. His cloak. Actually, his prayer shawl. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Do you remember the prayer shawl? Do you remember the legend? Jesus always wore this. And at the end of the prayer shawl was called the kabaf. And it was believed by legend if a person could just come up and touch the edge of Jesus' prayer shawl, he or she could be healed. Now the story goes on from here as we read and we see what Jesus does and has to say with the woman. In verse 29 uh, and 30, we read an interesting statement about Jesus, what one writer calls his godliness and his manliness. Verse 29 says, Immediately her bleeding stopped, uh, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. And he turned around in the crowd, and he asked, Who touched me? Who touched me? She touched the cloak, and she was healed. And Jesus realizes that power had gone out from him. He knew that, and so he turns in the crowd, and he says, who touched me? The power, the 
misguidedness of man and who touched me, the madness, or of Jesus, the madness of Jesus. Now, you know, it's an interesting thing to notice what's at action here. Because Mark 4 and 5 is all about Jesus' power, His power over nature, His power over demons we read last week, His power uh, over sickness, and just a moment we'll read about His power over uh, over death itself. But I want you to notice here that Jesus is concerned about personal touch. It wasn't like Jesus was in a crowd and, you know, all kinds of people were healed and He walked on and He didn't care. His question was, who is it that's touched me? You see, each of us should take, I think, huge hope in that because the issue is that Jesus isn't just interested in everybody. He's interested in your needs specifically as well. And he desires to have personal connection with you. Verse 31 says, You see the people crowding around you, the disciples ask, yet you ask, Who touched me? You see, the disciples were totally oblivious to this hopeless woman, and all they saw was the synagogue boss who had said, come and take care of my child. And in their minds, they might have been thinking, Jesus, let's get on with it. He's a powerful, prominent man. By the way, you're not getting along so well with synagogue leaders these days, and if you'll go and take care of his daughter, then maybe we'll be able to get back into synagogue again. All of that perhaps was in their mind. Verse 32, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told the whole truth. You see, while the disciples perhaps were all thinking, Jesus, why are you wasting our time with this worthless, hopeless Woman, she's one woman. And by the way, uh, you know, I don't know whether you realize this or not, for that woman to touch Jesus, it not only, uh, she was unclean, but it also made Jesus unclean. You see, according to Jewish law, she could not touch any man at any time or any person at any time. And she couldn't even walk on a road in front of another man. But she comes and she touches Jesus. And Jesus says the most amazing thing. Verse 43, he turns to her and says, daughter. It's a term of endearment. Perhaps it had been years since she had heard anyone speak to her in a loving, caring, kind way. He says, daughter, your faith has healed her. Don't you understand it? It's your faith. Not my prayer shawl that healed you. Get rid of the legend, get rid of the magic, all of that sort of thing. Understand that it is by my power through your faith that you've been healed. The question comes up, was it the woman's faith or the Jesus' power that healed uh, the woman? I love this quote. Go ahead and show it there, Angela. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, "Though though faith in itself is powerless, it is the channel through which Jesus' power can work. And that, my friends, is the connection between faith and power. Jesus says, verse 34, he says, daughter, your faith has healed you, now go in peace. Anybody know the, remember the Hebrew word for peace? Say it out loud. Anybody remember? It's the word shalom. Shalom. Shalom is not, as God 
uh, wants it to be is not just, you know, peace among uh, uh, enemies on a battlefield. It is total joy. It is total and complete harmony with God and with people and even with ourselves. And Jesus speaks to this woman and he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Now you go in the whole presence of shalom. And then he says, Be freed from your suffering. One thing I didn't tell you about the word suffering When it says earlier that the woman had been suffering, it's a fascinating word, and it's repeated here uh, in this section of Scripture. Do you remember when Jesus was uh, being beaten by the Roman guards before he went to the cross? You remember that? And uh, that, that whip that they just beat Jesus with repeatedly over and over and over again. That's the same word used here. A weapon of punishment. A weapon of suffering a weapon of torment, and the Bible says your torment, that whip that's been beating you for all of these years, is now gone. You know, I think a lot of times we ask the question when we're suffering, you know, what am I being punished for? I've said that. Has anybody else ever said that, you know, when you're going through a really rough time, I wonder what on earth God is punishing me for? I wonder how many times this woman... Lonely woman must have asked herself the same question. Well, you remember Jairus in the story. The story jumps from Jairus to this woman who's been healed, and quickly it goes back to Jairus. In verse 35 it says, While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, a synagogue uh, ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore. It's too late. Don't bug him anymore. Verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Remember what you've just seen, Jairus. I have just healed this woman. Just believe and let's go on our way. Verse 37 says, and he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I got to tell you something. Jesus had never been to the uh, modern-day school of faith healers. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, No lights, no cameras, no let's everybody see what I'm doing. He left everybody behind and took only three of his apostles with him. Verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with the people crying and wailing. Uh, It was during that day the custom to hire professional mourners to come. Wouldn't that be a job to have? Can can you imagine that? But they'd come, they'd throw dust in the air, they'd scream, wail. Perhaps that explains why they turned so fast, quickly from wailing to making fun of Jesus in the very next verses. Verse 39 said, He went in and he said, While this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had put them all out, all of them, he took the child's father and his mother and the three disciples that were with him and he went into where the child was. And he took her by the hand and he said, and this is the Aramaic language there, the language that Jesus would have spoken most commonly, and he said, Talitha Koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. And she was 12 years old. Isn't that fascinating? At this, they were completely astonished. And he gave them strict orders not to let anybody know about this. 
and he told them to give them something, uh, give the girl something to eat. I, I just think that's that's crazy. Give her something. I'm kind of figuring that resurrection just really makes you hungry or something. I, I don't know. So my thought is, uh, you know, from that, i got to wonder what is going to be our first meal in heaven. Yeah, Do you ever wonder about that? You know, it must be a hungry, uh, you know, just generating hunger in ourselves. Well, there's some parallels between these two people. Both of them are, are women. Both of them are unclean. Both of them have been suffering for 12 years, uh, or at least or, uh, the, the year 12 is important in the story, and Jesus heals both of them. Now, the story, I believe, teaches us so much about God and his kingdom. And you will remember in Mark chapter 1, in verse 15, Jesus is all about teaching the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe good news. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you four quick observations about the kingdom of God and about God from this story, and then we're going to pray together, and we're going to receive the Lord's Supper, and we're going to worship together uh, our God. Number one, God's longing. I believe this story talks about God's longing. You notice in the story that Jesus doesn't just see the crowd, but notice that Jesus is scanning the crowd, eyeball to eyeball every person in the crowd, to see who it was that he had healed. You see, I believe that's core to who God is. Because to him, you and I aren't just faces in the crowd. We are a son and we're a daughter. Now, too often times, I think that we come to Jesus like this woman in the crowd. We come in prayer and we say, Lord, I want something from you. And when we get that, we are satisfied to slip back away in the crowd and hope that God will just leave us alone until we need him again. But that's not God's nature. God's nature is not just about answering our prayers, though he wants to answer our prayers. And he doesn't get upset when he does that. Instead, it is about uh, us wanting and longing for him because he's longing for us. Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever had, if you've had children, and you've done this if you've had children, had your children, you put them in bed, and, uh, you know, they're in bed, you're back downstairs reading or watching television or whatever, and you hear their little voice saying, Mommy, Daddy, I'm thirsty. And you go up and you give them a glass of water. And you go back down, sit down, and you've been there about two minutes, they... Cry out again, saying, I'm thirsty. Go back up again. About a third or fourth time, you say, listen, you're going to bed, and I don't hear any more out of you, okay? Or how about this? You buy your kid a brand-new pair of tennis shoes, all right? A brand-new pair of tennis shoes, the one he wants. And remember that a young kid does one thing especially well. They grow out of things, all right? And that pair of shoes that you spent a month's pay on You know, two months ago, they come to you and they say, my feet hurt, and you check them, and sure enough, they're too small. Now, i got to ask you a question. Is there frustration in your mind toward your kid? Well, yes, there is. But do you punish them for growing and not, or being thirsty uh, and not loving them? Do you stop loving them? No, of course not. And you provide for them what they need. God does exactly the same thing for us. But folks, let me ask you this question. Would you rather give your child something that they need 
Or would you rather just spend time with them and want them to spend time with you? Now that never ends. Our youngest daughter is 30 years old, and I had the opportunity on Friday night to spend uh, 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 about almost all day. We went to the Washington Nationals game together, and we had a great time, just Betsy and me. And, uh, we laughed, and uh, we had great seats. And, but you know what? It, it wasn't about you know, the food that I bought her at the ball game and uh, buying her ticket. It wasn't about any of that. You know what was special to me? Betsy and I were together, all right? And we spent a long time together. And we talked and we laughed and we were together. That's God's longing. Number two, God's timing. We learn a lot about God's timing. We never see time as God does. One writer wrote and says, we see time like a chronology of events. You know, chronology of events. That's what time is. But God sees it as a story about character development. Who here struggles with God's timing, especially when you're going through problems? We all do. We all do. It's been 12 years. I'm still suffering. My daughter's dead. My dreams are gone. My life is over. Lost my job, losing my house. My marriage is kaput, on and on and on. Hear Jesus today in the story saying to that woman and to that dad and to you, don't give up. Just believe and know that I am doing something. And until I do it, just rest with me and in our touch together. We understand something about sickness and healing in this story as well. The word healing, uh, using this story three times, verse 23, 28, and 34, is uh, uh, the Greek word sozo. It's used 106 times in Scripture. 86 of those times it's used for the word save, to be saved. Only two times it's used uh, describing healing. You see, we think of being saved or salvation as freedom from sin, and it is. But it's also freedom from all the consequences of sin and the fall as well. Folks, I want you to understand that just because you have been saved from sin and its penalty, there are still consequences in your life that you suffer with all the time. Some of them are emotional and some are spiritual and some are relational. And Jesus has come to bring salvation to all of those areas. But I want you to understand When it comes to physical, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to get this in your mind. I want you to know God will heal you of whatever issue you're dealing with right now. He will heal you. Now the question is, is it going to be pre-resurrection or post-resurrection? I can't describe that. I can't answer that question. But all healing, this side of heaven, is temporary. You get that? It's always temporary. Because unless Jesus comes back first, you got a pretty good chance that you're going to die. Have you figured that out? All right? And that's going to happen to you one day. And while in this life we suffer, we have hope in the resurrection, and we are seeking God's perspective for suffering and for healing and for sickness. I like what one writer writes about this passage of Scripture. He said, for Jesus, death is nothing more than a long afternoon nap. And time's sake, 
What a wonderful thing to remember. One last thing, and we're done. One last uh, 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 lesson that we learned from this passage of Scripture, and that is that faith, uh, it's about faith and expectancy. You see, Jairus and the woman were both willing to risk everything to fall at Jesus' feet. They were willing to risk risk their their, uh, ridicule and their uh, reputation. Why? Because they were hopeless. I believe one of the curses of living in America and being a Christian in America is that we as American Christians have lost our sense of hopelessness. Hear me out. We don't have to be hopeless. We got insurance. If insurance doesn't take care of it, Obamacare will, okay? And beyond that, we got credit cards. And beyond that, we got social services. And so there's no real need to be hopeless today, dependent only on God, because our hope is always in something else. But is it really? Is it really? How would it be if we worship today out of an attitude of hopelessness and out of an attitude that Jesus can heal and out of an attitude that Jesus is present to heal, not just physical ailment, but all the ailments in our lives. Maybe you've been sick for 12 years and longing for a touch from Jesus. Jesus can heal. Maybe you've been saved for a long, long time and you're on your way to heaven, but you're craving real salvation in your soul, that abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. Maybe your daughter's dead, your marriage is over, your prayers are unanswered, and you just wonder, where's God? Folks, I want you to understand that Jesus has the power to heal every part of your life. Now, I do not know whether that will take place on this side of resurrection or that side of resurrection, but I want to tell you, never lose hope and never stop craving and never stop asking for Jesus' touch into your life. There's a promise I want to give you, and we're going to worship kind of out of this promise uh, this morning, and that is just totally independent of you and of me and has everything to do with Jesus. This passage of Scripture, listen to what it says. It says, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. This morning, we met two people that came and fell at the feet of Jesus and asked for his healing touch, and Jesus gave it to them. This morning, what I want us to do is do that exact same thing. And if you're physically able, would you take a knee this morning? Let's just fall at the feet of Jesus this morning. Lord Jesus, there are people that are here this morning that are just longing for a touch from you. That's why they're here. They're hurting, they're they're needing, they've got physical issues, or they've got relationship issues, or they've got financial pressures. Uh, Father, they, they are hopeless, and they're wondering, is there anything anybody can do? Father, we are kneeling at your son's feet today, Because we know that all of the hopes of man and all of the strategies of man to fill the void in our lives and 
to give us hope in the midst of our hopelessness, Father, they just don't work. Father, like the man in the video, so many of us are in the storm wondering what you're doing and what you're bringing about. Father, this morning from Nahum 1, would you teach us deeply in our souls that you are in the very middle of the storm. And it's almost as if you love being there because it's the storm that pushes us to our knees. And only on our knees do we worship you in spirit and truth. Lord Jesus, as we remember what you've done for us on the cross through communion this morning, and then as we worship you, Father, we want to do so in hope. Father, bless us with your presence. Lord Jesus, you've promised that you will be with us. We have gathered in your name. And we pray, Father, that it would not just be a scanning of the crowd, but Lord God, that you would see our individual need and that you would come close to each one of us and touch us today with your holy presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Rise to your seats. The men are going to pass communion around and uh, let's just uh, receive communion this morning and then we'll worship together today. Thank you.